Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. That's Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one who to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, I forgot to mention this last week, and I wanted to do that after I got back from my trip. But a month ago, two beautiful people got married. Very beautiful. And I want to introduce them to you. Um, Kevin and Esther. Could you just stand up for a quick second and show us who you are? And let's congratulate them. I learned things about them that I never knew before. For instance, Kevin had emotion. That was amazing. And Esther was apparently a superstar in her church. That made me plan a lot. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but that was awesome to, to see. And that was the first wedding I went to when someone walked out. So there is a um, processional when you go in. And then there's a recessional when you, after you get married, you go out. And during the recessional, uh, there was a nice quartet, and they played Starlight by Muse. And it just made me think, I like Kevin and Esther even more now. Um, and uh, it was just a beautiful wedding. I want to congratulate you once again. Um, there's a lot of things God is doing, and I do believe that God is giving us new opportunities to grow. Um, things like marriage, when we see that we can move on, uh, find a partner, but in love, place our trust in God, saying this is the person I will commit to. And in marriage, what I want to exemplify isn't just our own love for each other, but marriage should magnify Jesus and his bride. So in our marriages, we need to show the world what it's like for Jesus to also love the church 
and how that plays a role. Um, I also want to mention and note that even though it was in our bulletin last week, we had a deacon nominee election. And now they are no longer nominees. This diverse group of people are now our deacon elects. And so um, could you just stand up from where you are so we can see you? Uh, Christine, Johnny, Albert, Joe. There they are. Let's congratulate them once again. They are deacon elects, which means even though they are elected, they are not deacons yet. We have a formal process of training, prayer, and where they finally get ordained a few months later. So that is why we're asking you and us all, we need to keep them in our prayers as they train. Last week also, Pilgrim had a congregational vote. And I remember David asking me, what that vote consisted of. And I wasn't exactly sure, so I said it was kind of like this, kind of like that. But basically, it was about their independence, where they're going to go, updates to their bylaws, keeping their leadership, and next time they can meet again um, instead of giving a two-week notice. So there, there are some detailed information that they had to do. But they, they voted. Uh, last week so that they can be independent from the PCUSA and that vote was 98.1% uh, I believe and now that we're going to see how either the denomination or the presbytery responds to the vote. So let's continue to keep them in prayer every Saturday when we come we're praying for them and this is our mother church and so we want to continue to keep them in our prayers. It's not going to be an easy ride, and it hasn't been so far, but we want to ask that you continue to keep them in prayer. I just want to say I did meet with Reverend Yang, and what's amazing about him and what I really respect about him is we sat down, and then he asked me, these are the options that this church is going through. Eugene, can you tell me what you think? And I was like, wow, you know, this must be so heavy on him. And yet here he's asking me for advice. And I was very honest with him, and I said, if I were in your position, I actually don't know exactly what I'd do. To be frank, I'm surprised that people who are absolutely sure this is the answer or that's the answer. I can't believe Reverend Yang is doing this. I can't believe Reverend Yang is not doing this. And they're absolutely sure. Um, First of all, I'm not in his position. I don't have to care for 2,000 plus members. Um, they're not that diverse a group of people. I look at all of you and we're only 150 to 200, but even that, we're kind of collective in our thinking. We're very conservative, we're reformed, but 2,000 is a little more diverse. And even then, I was so happy to see that God is answering our prayers for unity in that church. 98.1% is an astonishing number and statistic. But let's continue to keep them in prayer and let's continue to keep Reverend Yang in prayer. What I wanna urge you, because many of you have parents and people that attend Pilgrim Church, what I wanna urge you is not to make a decision more than you should be praying for them. Pray for them. Pray for wisdom for the leadership. They see things that you don't. 
And even with what I see, I see a very difficult road ahead. So let's continue to keep them in our prayers. With that said, we are continuing on with Galatians, and I feel like it's so important, and it really was God-led that in this 500th year anniversary of our Reformation, we're going through Galatians, and we see all the things that our church is going through. And so we want to start again and continue on. This is kind of my part two to last week, but let's start with a prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Last night I had dinner with my family and um, something happened. And even after something happened, my sister asked me, are you gonna talk about this sometime soon? And I said, what do you mean sometime soon? I'm gonna talk about it tomorrow. Because what happened to me was so tragic and traumatic. Um, <clears throat> I invited my family over for dinner and my wife and I prepared um, the best bread we could you know, prepare. So there was meat, meaning beef, and then there was pork. Um, there was all sorts of side dishes. And our apartment is very small, so we couldn't all fit in the table. So um, my sister, her husband, and my nephew were at the coffee table. And then my parents and I and my wife were at the main table. But we were kind of close together. We are eating and we are enjoying our food. And there is something that I really like when I eat Korean food, like barbecue because it was a steak with um, spicy marinated pork. And so I really liked it. And we have like um, lettuce, uh, like um, perilla leaves, and all these things that you put it in, and then you put a little soybean, hot soybean paste on it, and then you eat it with the meat and all that stuff. It was good. But there's something that I particularly enjoy while I eat the meat, and that is a Korean hot pepper. When you put it in that paste, and then you eat the hot pepper, it's so good. And I like it so much because I like it because it refreshes and cleanses my palate so I could eat more meat. That's the point, right? The whole point is to stuff as much meat as you can in your mouth and belly. And so eating this pepper would cleanse my palate and I would be able to eat more meat. Now as I was eating this pepper, uh, I ate this one pepper. It wasn't that hot, it was a little spicy, I suppose. I chewed it, and then in the middle was a little darker. And so I was like, oh, that might be a little uh, too spicy then. So I just put it down on my napkin, and I continued to eat. Uh, I didn't really look at it. I just knew the center was a little dark. And as I was eating, on the corner of my eye, I see something moving. This is true. And then I look at my napkin, and there's a maggot rolling around in my napkin. So <clears throat> I put my chopsticks down, and I just sat there. <laughs> I was just thinking, what is life? <laughs> Why am I going through this right now? And I was praying, God, didn't I get married? Why is she not going through this? Isn't she supposed to share some of the burden? Why am I still the only one going through this hard time, God? Am I the only one to suffer in this family? And all these thoughts are in my head, right? And I was thinking about all these things, and I could see everybody 
everybody saw that I was very distressed. Um, my wife is there, she's, she's like frozen, she doesn't know what I'm gonna do, so she apologizes, I guess instinctively, but I turned to her and said, it's not your fault. And then I was thinking, it's not her fault, it's H-Mart's fault. <laughs> How do I burn H-Mart to the ground? That's what I'm thinking in my head. And then, you know, I think it was my brother-in-law who said, oh, don't worry, it's just extra protein. And, and then my dad uh, and my mom were trying to also console me. I guess I was very, the, the spirit and mood was very heavy. Because it was fun up until that point. Until I saw that thing rolling around in my napkin, it was fun until then. And I was just thinking, how could I have avoided this? The pepper looked so fresh. It looked beautiful, there's nothing wrong with it. It wasn't discolored, the stem wasn't bad, it was just perfect. And my mom was like, it's okay, don't worry. And my dad is like, things like this happen. And I was like, why is everybody talking to me? I'm trying to, trying to figure this thing out. So I got up in the middle of dinner and I started doing the dishes because I just needed to think. So I'm doing the dishes. Everybody's eating dinner. I'm just doing the dishes. And then people are like, are you okay? Are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. And so how do I get HMART back for this, for this heinous crime that they've committed? And I couldn't finish the meal. I was just disgusted. Um, and I was just thinking about it and thinking about it. And then my sister came in and she, she asked me that question. Are you going to talk about it ever in your sermon? And I said, what do you mean ever? It's tomorrow. I'm talking about this tomorrow. And because I was meditating all week and of course I had another illustration, but this one I believe was so perfect for us to kind of start out with. Sometimes things look perfect. You can't, you feel like you can't tell the difference. It looks so perfectly ripe, edible, fine. When you chew it, it's rotten, and you're just eating maggots. It's terrible, right? And what is that? And I believe that that is the gospel. And this is what we want to continue on talking about. The gospel is unique, as we talked about last week, but the gospel, the true gospel, is what we need to understand because outside it may look good, but inside is death. Likewise, when we change one iota of scripture, when we revise the gospel because we think we know better, it's not the gospel anymore. And this is what Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 9. And we talked about the five solas last week. And I hope you remember, it's easily remembered by two great truths of the Reformation. Number one meaning being that the absolute unique authority of Scripture is what we believe. The scripture has absolute, unique, and supreme authority. Number two, that we have received the gospel of justification, and that's by grace alone, by faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The five solas that we believe is sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. These are the five solas, the foundation of our Reformation, and we believe it to be the foundation of the gospel. And this is what we see here also. And I talked about it last week. In verse 4, there it's all laid out too. But you can't miss one. If you miss one, 
It's not the gospel. It's not. One of the things that I did talk with Reverend Yang is about the denomination that Pilgrim Church is affiliated with. And I said, I don't believe that they are reformed. They can say that they're reformed. And I believe there are pockets of conservative churches, but the denomination itself has far and long time ago left the Protestant Reformation. In the confession, uh, I had some time, so I started to read the Book of Order from 2009, and also the Book of Order uh, in 2014-15, and they specifically, intentionally, leave out and omit in the Book of Order, solus Christus and soli Deo Gloria. And in their own words, what they write in the Book of Order is the Protestant watchwords not foundation, they don't say this is foundational to our belief in the gospel, but they call these things the Protestant watchwords, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, embodies principles of understanding that continue to guide and motivate the people of God in the life of faith. They're not just watchwords, my friends. We believe that the five solas are foundational to the Reformation because they saw it as foundational to the gospel. And why is solus Christus so important? Why is Christ alone so important? Solus Christus is the reformed teaching that Jesus Christ is one with God, that by his death and bodily resurrection, he is unique and the only mediator between God and humans. And salvation is in no one else. In John 14, 7, it says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I know I have friends in this denomination. I have friends that got ordained in the denomination. And we do have discussions and we do have dialogue. And what troubles me greatly is that solus Christus is not interpreted in this manner. In fact, it's not even said in the book of order. But there is no other way to salvation. We can argue that God is sovereign and he could do whatever he wants. But the bottom line is if you believe in sola scriptura, then God did what he wanted to do. And what he did was he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus Christ is the one that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, as Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why we don't pray in just any name. We don't pray in Buddha's name or Allah's name or just Yahweh's name. We pray in Jesus' name because in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. There is salvation found in no one else. At the 2001 General Assembly of uh, the PCUSA, motion was declared. And like I said, there are pockets of conservative people in that denomination. The motion was declared to have um, this written in their uh, book of order, the singular saving lordship of Jesus Christ. That's it, solus Christus, the singular saving lordship of Jesus Christ. 
That motion was defeated. And when the assembly was persuaded that such a statement was um, disrespectful to other religions, uh, the speaker residing at that, presiding uh, and representing the opinion said, religions are like a basket of fruit. Apples and oranges are different, but they are all fruit. Religions are different varieties of the same thing, so they're equal. And this is what has been said. This is actually, I think, in line with what we get taught. So when we go, oh yeah, so, sola scriptura, solus Christus, I believe it. But when we start laying it out and what that actually means, people start being, wait, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, we're, we're taught to be tolerant. We're taught to understand other people, other religions, communicate, work with them. Shouldn't we be more tolerant? And I say, yes, we should be more tolerant. But tolerance must be built upon the foundation of truth. Not anything goes. And that leads to chaos, lawlessness, and it leads to disorder. And as I've mentioned in previous sermons, it leads to sin of every kind. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And this final sola represents the culmination of our faith, that everything is done for God's glory alone. You know, what's implicit in this doctrine is the idea that any thought, belief, or activity that is not in keeping with the will of God as expressed in Scripture is to be denied. God is represented by the Trinity, a manifestation of God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created by the Father through the Son through whom we have been redeemed. Then we are drawn into a holy Trinitarian communion by the Holy Spirit. It empowers us to be fruitful. We experience abundant and eternal life. The Reformed faith tells us that it's not just Jesus Christ that we know as our savior, but he is our present Lord, our future judge, our coming king. That's why our life in Christ is a disciplined life in which our wills and sinful inclinations must be condemned by putting him as the primary example, his teaching and his witness in scripture, so that everything that we do is in reverent submission and honor to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And now when we think about this, there are some perhaps ultra-conservatives in youth group. You may have heard this as well. Who knows? But when people are like, oh, Jesus died for your sins. And when he was on that cross, he thought about you. And, and then someone will come out and say, Jesus didn't think about you. He just thought about the glory of God. That's why he died on that cross. And the answer is, yes, that's true. And that's what Soli Deo Gloria ultimately stands for. The primary motive undergirding Jesus' thoughts were to glorify his Father and to do his will. But I would also say, but because of that, because we have this undergirding principle to glorify the Father, and because Jesus did that, he was able to love us and die for us and think about us when he did. That means he was able to fully love us as who we are because he was primarily motivated by glorifying 
his father. If we start to lose, and if we start to deny, or even if we start to compromise this and compromise these truths, what we don't have anymore is the gospel. We have something else. And this is what the Reformed faith is fighting for. This is the 500 years of Reformation. What could it look like, though, if we started denying just a little bit, just, you know, not too much? Because it never starts out. No denomination changes outright being like, we don't believe in these things anymore. And this is historically true, but they'll start by saying, you know, try not to pray so much in Jesus' name. We have other people here. We want to be respectful. Just pray in God's name. Why is that so wrong? Why is that so bad? You know what? Try not to say, and this, is, this is even what I read uh, in a textbook in seminary by a very famous man named Migliori, but he would say things like, um, try not to say the Bible is the only way. Uh, you can believe it, but it's really not out there. You know, it's not, we don't, we don't subscribe to biblicism is what the exact words he used. We don't subscribe to the dead letter of biblicism. That's the exact quote he used. And by that, he meant that we don't subscribe to the scripture being infallible and errant. Meaning we need to interpret the Bible by the Holy Spirit so we can't literally take everything, right? It's ridiculous to take the Bible literally. So we need to start interpreting it. And from there, you start moving and moving and moving until you can't say sola scriptura anymore. You can't say solus Christus anymore. And you continue to move. There is a trend that has been happening. And this is what we need to be aware of. We need to see this and see that this is actually happening. But we also have to see what could it look like and how does it just pervade us in our church. I don't think it's time for us to just start pointing at denominations, pointing at other churches. Let's look at us. If we start compromising, denying, or losing these truths, what could it look like? And it could look like this. You are saved through your surrender to Christ. You are saved through your surrender to Christ. That means we say things like, give your life to Christ. Ask him into your life. We have things like, we want altar calls happening. And that is what saves you. Once you do the altar call, once you surrender your life, that's what saves you. It may sound biblical, but the huge danger is that it rejects the grace first principle. Because I have a strong faith, a strong love, a strong trust in God, therefore I must be saved. Look at me. Look at my high degree of spiritual sorrow, hunger, and love. Then that means to stay saved, I have to maintain this high level of whatever. And we see that play out in our lives when I am not maintaining this high level of sorrow, of some kind of spirituality, of some kind of hunger, then I must not be a good Christian anymore. So I got to work at it again. It's the level of faith that makes me a Christian. The gospel says it's not the level of faith that makes you a Christian. The gospel says that we are saved through faith. That means our salvation does not hinge on any performance, period. 
Our salvation does not hinge on any performance. And people talk about predestination versus free will. It's hard for me to believe in predestination. I can't believe, I can't believe we, we don't have anything to do with it. And I would say this, it is through faith that you have been saved, not because of faith. You can't put faith as a merit and a work. And people will start quoting James perhaps, but we're going to get to that. You have been, been saved through faith, not by works. You have been saved through faith, not by works. And what that really means is, let's really look at the big picture. I don't really get the whole debate between predestination and free will if you really understand sola gratia. If you want to really think about it, let's say you're in a million dollar debt. I don't make any money. In fact, I continue to accrue debt. But right now, it's at a million dollars. I'm suffocating. If anybody's been in debt, I don't want you to raise your hand. I was going to, who's in debt? But um, if anybody's been in debt, it's suffocating and it can be crippling. Just even a ten, twenty thousand dollar debt. If in your mind you you know that you can never pay that off, like you are always in the negative and the red. And let's say you're in a million dollar debt and you continue to accrue more and more debt. And there is no way you can pay it off. You can't work. You can't do anything to get any kind of income. If that's the case, and someone came up to you and says, I will pay your debt. Here's a check for a million dollars. And then you go, wow, you know what? I am now debt free. Praise the Lord. But good thing I accepted that check because that has a lot to do with me being debt free. And I would say to you, you are missing a huge point here. By talking and thinking and everything becomes you-centric, then you're missing the point of grace. You can't think of it like, oh my gosh, thank goodness Bill Gates came to my life, gave me this free check, and now I'm debt-free. Instead of saying that, it's like, thank goodness I accepted it. Woo, look at me. I'm awesome. We don't do me-centric when it comes to debt. But I will go even further. This is an infinite value that we have incurred as debt. There's no way we could have done it. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. And someone comes to save us. Dead in our sins and transgressions. That means we have been saved not by anything that we have done. We have been saved by grace through faith. And I think that's the main point. I know some small groups have been um, debating free will versus predestination. I think that's a healthy debate. That's fun. But don't ever forget that undergirding all of this discussion has to be sola gratia, sola fide. It is by faith, through grace, you have been saved, not by works. So if we start saying, you know what, now because you have surrendered your life, you are saved, then you start seeing the shift already. And that danger is even here in our church. It's not bad that we sing these songs, I surrender, but if we think that we are saved because I sing it, then that's where we start losing the point. Number two, how it could also look like is, it doesn't matter what you specifically believe in. Pastor Eugene, what's up with all this dogma and doctrine? 
As long as I'm a good and loving person, isn't that okay? And this may sound good again, but again it turns to works. Because you are a loving and good person, you are saved. It sounds tolerant, but it is incredibly intolerant of grace. We have to realize works are not enough to get to God. If it were, if we're saying any work is good enough to get to God, as long as you are good, it doesn't, you don't actually need to necessarily believe in Jesus. You just need to really be good. I need Jesus. And you can say that. I need Jesus, you guys, because I am bad. But you, I want to be tolerant to you. So you don't necessarily need Jesus. Just be really good and loving. And Jesus is a good person. He's a good teacher. Listen to some of his teaching. What we are saying that Jesus' death was not necessary because all it essentially takes is virtue. Then the mistake of thinking that I am tolerant and open, I think that because that I am tolerant and open, God will be pleased. But we are actually making a statement that I don't need grace. I can get eternal happiness for myself or someone else in my own way or their way. What the gospel shows us is that we are truly a desperate and deprived people. And we seek grace because we cannot do it on our own. We have to realize that the true gospel is essential to our being as Christians. So how do we know that our gospel is the true gospel? If so many are fooled, what's the plumb line that we are to use to know that our gospel is the right one? And Paul makes it clear that if any other gospel is preached by anyone else, even if it's the capital A apostles, if any other gospel is preached by who, no matter who it is, then the gospel that has been received from Christ and taught, then let them be damned. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're an elder. It doesn't matter if you're a deacon or any kind of spiritual leader. If we preach to you a gospel other than the one that Christ taught his apostles, then let them be damned. Paul even goes further into say, we. In verse 8, he says, but we or any angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. That is significant because we see that Paul includes himself in the pool. If anyone says anything other than what Jesus told the capital A apostles to pass down, if I go, oh, wait, I changed my mind. We need to change this a little bit. Let me be damned. Why is that so significant? It means that gospel authority wasn't just derived from his apostolic authority. It means that his apostolic authority was derived from the biblical gospel. The Bible judges the church. The church does not judge the Bible. The church and its every hierarchy must be evaluated by every believer with the biblical gospel. The plumb line for judging any truth claim is the Bible. We don't make our plumb line our personal experience. We don't judge the Bible according to our circumstances or experiences. And yes, it means that if, a, if an angel literally showed up to you and said, 
I have a new Bible verse for you. Or if it said, you, an angel just showed up, brilliant, shining. You, oh friend of God, you are one of the new 12 apostles. You would reject that because our plumb line is scripture. It also means that our, our Bible, the Bible is our plumb line even when it's inconvenient. Oh, the Bible says this? It's just cultural. Paul was just speaking about his culture. The answer is no. Why is Paul so uncompromising? Because if you turn from the gospel, you are, as it says in verse 6, deserting him who called you. Secondly, there is no other gospel. Another gospel is not gospel at all in verse 6 and 7. You can't say that the pepper I ate was 95% good, 95% not rotten, so I should eat all of it. In fact, after I ate it, my stomach felt queasy. I was like, is this maggot going to grow? Does it have powers to deter my acid from my stomach? Is it going to kill me? Don't make me flip a table. That's what I was thinking. Any other gospel brings condemnation because it is not gospel. It brings death. That's why Paul is adopting such a severe and seemingly harsh tone because of the concern that he has. This is the gospel we have been fighting for as a church. It's worth reminding ourselves over and over and over again. The two great truths recovered by the Reformation is that there is absolute, unique, supreme authority in Scripture. And that the gospel of justification that we received is by grace alone, by faith alone, on the basis or through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It is about seeing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life as scripture says it. Every single iota, every single word, ounce that is in the Bible is precious. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and living in the way that we should. And every single thing in the Bible points to Jesus Christ. Every other way that we have tried only leads to bitterness and even damnation. I believe we have tried it. A lot of us still may try to do it. We heard very powerful testimony today where I want to do these things. I want to try these things. I want to have fun. That's such a powerful testimony because it's honest. It's true. We want to do these things. We want to go back to our sinful nature thinking that it will fulfill us. But in the end, we see that it doesn't. It leaves us more dry. It leaves us hungrier, thirstier. One of the most amazing things I read was an account on heroin and how it changed this person's life. So this person recorded how he... Um, experienced heroin and I see it as yes what the government is saying is true and what people have been saying for a long time is true that we have an epidemic a heroin epidemic 
And what is going on is that person was recording it and said, you know, the first hit you take, you don't notice it. You're just like, fine, whatever. But you do notice a little change in you. And then you're driving, traffic doesn't bother you anymore as much. And I was reading that, I was like, huh, I wish traffic didn't bother me so much. Anyway, so I was reading, I was relating to it. I was relating to it. My wife can relate to that because she sees me driving. But um, traffic doesn't bother you anymore. When it started raining, like every single raindrop has significance. He started appreciating the beauty of every single raindrop hitting the windshield. And life was exactly the same except a little better. And you take another hit. And, you to, and then for, uh, for him to continue on that level, he needs to take more and more. And then eventually he found that just to stay level, very soon, very quickly, mind you, just to stay at a normal level, just to be okay, he needed to take much more than he first started out with. And then it went even lower. To even get up to a point of depression, you need to take dangerous amounts. And eventually, he believed, this writer believed that everybody eventually will overdose and kill themselves because your heart cannot handle it. There are things in this world that seems like it's okay. It's fun. It's good, isn't it? But it leaves you thirstier, so you take a little more. It leaves you hungrier, so you keep on eating it. But it's garbage. It doesn't give you nutrition. It depletes you more. It makes you even more sufferable, and it kills you further. You think it's 95% good, but the 5% is killing us. That is why we do not leave the truth of the gospel in our lives. That is why we continue to meditate upon his word and say, Jesus Christ, it's through you alone that I am saved, that there is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other life but you. Help me to grow deeper in love with you so I can completely be pleasing to you, yes, but I also could receive even more joy even more satisfaction. Don't you see, as we grow in Christ, that's why God is so good. When we first get Christ, it feels good, but as we continue to grow, it gets better. It doesn't get worse, it doesn't stay the same, but it gets better as my relationship with Christ grows and the knowledge of truth in my life increases. I want to finish off with the story. And uh, there's a, there was a very wealthy, very famous English baron. His name was uh, Baron Fitzgerald. He only had uh, one child, one son. And understandably, that child and son was the apple of his eye, the center of his affections, the only child, and the focus for his family's attention. And the son grew up, but in the son's early teens, his mom died, leaving just him and the father. And Fitzgerald grieved over the loss of his wife, but devoted himself to fathering their son. And in the passing of time, the son became ill and died in his late teens. But in the meantime, all this was happening, Fitzgerald's financial holdings greatly increased and the father used much of his wealth to acquire artworks of the masters. And with the passing of more time, Fitzgerald himself became ill and he died.
And previous to his death, he carefully prepared his will with explicit instructions as to how his estate should be distributed and settled. He had directed there would be an auction to auction off his entire art collection of all the great masters that he had. And because the quantity and the quality of the artworks in his collections were valued in the millions of English pounds, a huge crowd gathered of prospective buyers, and expectantly they did. Among them were many museum curators, private collectors, and they were very eager to bid. The artworks were displayed for viewing before the auction began. Among them, there was one artwork that received little attention, and it was of poor quality and done by an unknown local artist. But it happened to be the portrait of Fitzgerald's only son, when the time came for the auction to begin, the auctioneer gaveled the crowd to attention, and before the bidding began, the attorney read first from the will of Fitzgerald, which instructed, which instructed that the first painting to be auctioned would be the painting of, quote, my beloved son, unquote. The poor quality painting didn't receive any bidders except one. The only bidder was an old servant who had loved the son and loved him so much he served him through love and for sentimental reasons offered the only bid. For less than an English pound, he bought the painting. The auctioneer stopped the bidding and asked the attorney to read again from the will to go on. The crowd was hushed and it was quiet and the attorney read from Fitzgerald's will. Whoever buys the painting of my son gets all my art collection. The auction is over. In today's world, everyone, everyone wants the Father's blessings. They want God to heal them of their physical ailments, provide them with nice things, solve problems, all these things. They want all of God's blessings, but they are not interested in God's Son. They believe they have no use for Jesus. But unless people accept and embrace the Son, there are no blessings from God. All of God's inheritance and blessings are given to those who love his son. This is what the Bible expressly teaches us. When we give our life, we give our life to Jesus Christ. And it is because of grace, if you have seen this, that you see it all. And so we give glory to the Father for opening your eyes. And we continue to pray that he would open up more eyes. May he open it up through you as you share the love that Christ has given you to the people that you are surrounded with. Let's pray.